This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Today on the show, we'll hear about new albums from Chastity Belt and Vivian Girls. We're all just really proud of this record. I personally think this is our best record that we've ever released. We'll also hear why Seattle musicians are moving to Nashville and what that music city has to offer. And it really doesn't depend upon who you are or how old you are or what your image is. It's more about how good your song is. But first, let's learn about how much Australia invests in its musicians. So Australia's federal government will spend more than three times what the U.S. will on artists and musicians this year. Contributor Celine Teoblocki reports on how one Australian band is benefiting from their country's funding model and how that money is allowing them to break out internationally. This is Haiku Hands. The band is made up of three core members, Beatrice Lewis from Melbourne, Australia, and sisters Claire and Mia Nakazawa from Sydney. Working with other performers, producers and beat makers, Claire Nakazawa considers the band a collective. Well, we write in a really collaborative way. Like, it comes together well because we, in the room, have it, like, shared values, inclusivity, empowerment. Um, we want to feel empowered, so like that's how we deliver our music. Beatrice Lewis says this positivity, coupled with their sound, have made them favourites at home. I guess there isn't a lot of acts like this. Like I haven't seen, in Australia particularly, four women on stage with really powerful, you know, electronic, punky dance music. It's not about you. Grants from the Australian National Council for the Arts kick-started all their artistic careers before Haiku Hands. For example, Lewis used her grant for her first solo EP and Mia Nakazawa says grants paid for two of her art exhibitions. I don't think I would, would have been able to do it otherwise if I didn't have this grant. The Australia grants have given the band members more financial freedom to start Haiku Hands, but Lewis says she's had to put all her savings into the band. It's definitely not what I was earning before so it's like it's building a small business I guess and that's a really big risk. Thanks to how Australia funds the arts, Haiku Hands was able to take their business overseas. Last year, Haiku Hands got a $20,000 grant from the Australian government. They used it to perform as part of an Australian music showcase at The Great Escape, which is a UK festival and music conference. They also used that money to cover a small UK tour. The grant covered flights, accommodation, a car rental and employing a tour manager. Glenn Dickey is with Sounds Australia. It's an organisation that helps promote Australian music overseas and puts on these Australian music showcases at festivals. He says these types of grants are a huge stepping stone for artists. A lot of the grants are, are given to artists that just need this additional leg up that's going to push them from being a, a small band to a superstar band or get them into a market that they wouldn't normally be able to get to financially. When Haiku Hands returned home from the UK tour, they built on this momentum and headlined their first tour across Australia. This year, they were invited to another Australian music showcase, this time at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Haiku Hands used earnings from the Australian tour to fund the travels to the US. Glenn Dickey says touring internationally 
especially in the U.S., is expensive when you factor in costs for visas, flights, food and lodging. Each individual is is going to be investing no less than $5,000 per person, probably more. It's probably closer to $10,000. For a band like Haiku Hands, that's a total cost of $30,000 to perform in the U.S., but the U.S. appearance is about more than just the money. According to Dickie, it's also about networking with key business people in the U.S. industry, from touring agents to booking managers. We invite the Australian industry to have a proper sit-down meal with the the U.S. industry where they can have a two-hour meeting with food and drink and, and they can establish these relationships in a more fulfilling manner than just running around the streets of Austin. Exposure is important for Australian bands to build a U.S. following. American bands can have a career just touring at home. Australia is the size of the U.S., but as a population the size of Texas, they need to tap international markets. And the U.S. is a lucrative one. The experience of playing at South by Southwest was good for the band. After their time there, they saw a spike in streaming numbers and more fans following them on social media. Media outlets also contributed to the buzz as Haiku Hands made the ones to watch list. Claire Nakazawa says it was an eye-opener. South by South was so amazing. Like I didn't have any expectations because I knew how, how many bands there are there. But yeah, just like playing all the shows and most of them being full of people and there being a vibe, like it was just like incredible. I think for me that was a moment when I'm like, whoa, we could definitely have a career in America. When Haiku Hands wrapped up their shows at South by Southwest in March, they followed it with a US tour. They even opened up for an Australian band that has made a name for themselves globally, 2019's Coachella headliner, Tame Impala. And while in California, they met their US-based management team there and got to work with two notable LA-based producers. And those grants from the Australia government are still flowing in. They have a new $20,000 grant from the Australia Council for the Arts to tour in the US again next month. Now with the support of an international team, taking care of the business side with visas and grant applications, Claire Nakazawa feels they can concentrate on the things they love. Being able to focus on the music, focus on touring, focus on the creative elements, like, that's a dream. That's a dream. <laughs> you can catch Haiku Hands in Seattle at the Showbox Sodo on October 7th. For Sound and Vision, this is Celine Teo Blocky. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. The Seattle-based band Chastity Belt released a self-titled album on Friday. Here's how the band's guitarist and vocalist Julia Shapiro describes the record. I think it's a little bit nostalgic and very introspective. You hear that nostalgia in their single and jam. It reminisces to 2008, before smartphones and Bluetooth technology was mainstream and CDs were a common thing to have in the car.
album comes after the band took a short hiatus. That hiatus started after Chastity Belt canceled a tour in April of 2018. That was the same time Shapiro was dealing with a cancer scare. We'd been touring kind of nonstop for six years or so. And in my head, it was going all right. And then, I don't know, I think I just kind of like hit a wall at a certain point where, and we all discussed it and we all were kind of on the same page where we felt like we had just started doing stuff, not because we were enjoying it, but just because we felt like we had to. And at the time, I also knew that I had to get this surgery on my thyroid. And it seems like a good time to just take a break, kind of reassess where we were at. I got the surgery and recovered from that. And we all kind of spent some time doing our own thing and figuring out what else we had to offer the world besides being in Chastity Belt. So yeah, it was a, it was a nice break for all of us. Shapiro took that time away from Chastity Belt to work on her audio engineering and production skills. She went on to release a self-produced solo album. My solo project, I had been working on that before we decided to cancel the tour. So I already kind of had this record deal with Hardly Art. But I think for me, some of those songs on that album could have been Chastity Belt songs. My solo album is maybe like a little bit more down-tempo even than Chastity Belt and um, a little more stripped down. Shapiro says her favorite song on the new Chastity Belt album is the song RAV4. I think the song turned out really well and it just has this like pretty crazy vibe. Chastity Belt heads out on a European tour next month. Their self-titled album is out now. Another band that's out with a new album after taking a break, it's Vivian Girls. Vivian Girls formed in Brooklyn in 2007. After three albums under their belt and many tours, they broke up in 2014, as bassist Katie Goodman explains. We were just kind of done at that point. Like, we had toured really hard for a lot of years. We had released album after album without any real breaks. And we just felt like it was time. Like, we had set, we had done what we had set out to do, and we felt like we had finished. Band members went off to work on other musical projects. 
For example, drummer Ali Kohler went on to form a band called Upset with Patty Schemmel, the drummer for Hole. Kohler says she's happy to be playing with Vivian Girls again. It felt really great. It felt really natural. Uh, we have like a very sisterly relationship, so it felt very um, like coming home. Kohler says there was an X factor when Vivian Girls came back together to record the song Lonely Girl. I really love Lonely Girl because... I feel like it's kind of unexpected from us. And throughout the entire recording of the album, we all came together in like a really magical way, but that one feels super, I don't know. There's a lot of magic to that one for me. Meanwhile, Goodman says her favorite song on this album is called At It Again. I like it because just the title of it is kind of describes what we're doing. Like, hey, we're back. We're at it again, which is like the most straightforward thing. But then the song itself is just so powerful and like the lyrics are so dark and emotional. Despite the sad lyrics to this song, Goodman says the band is excited to be at it again. We're all just really proud of this record. I personally think this is our best record that we've ever released. And like, we're just really proud of it and happy to be back. Vivian Girl's new album is called Memory. It's out now. This is Sound and Vision. Over the summer, the show explored why so many musicians seem to be leaving Seattle for L.A., Is it because of the sunshine, because Seattle has changed so much over recent years, or for new opportunities? Turns out it's a combination of a lot of things. And today we explore why four musicians left Seattle for Nashville and what that music city has to offer. They are Aaron English, Kate Tucker, Bradford Loomis, and Willow Scribner of the duo Willow and Wood. What you gonna do with me? KEXP Sound and Vision reporter Lisa Craze has a story of their journey. It's called Music City USA for good reason. According to the Recording Industry Association of America, music contributes an estimated $10 billion to the economy of the Nashville metro area. And music helps create and sustain an estimated 56,000 jobs there. Seattle's numbers are just a fraction of that, no matter what report you look at. Nashville's greater opportunity for musicians is part of what's driving some Seattleites to cut their ties here and make Nashville their home. Aaron English grew up in Gig Harbor and was a professional touring musician based in Seattle until the end of 2018. He says he moved to Nashville for a personal relationship and to be closer to the beating heart of the music industry. It's called hedging your bets, I guess, that uh, Nashville has an abundance of 
opportunity and uh, it's such a small city, it's a bit like being in a college campus. And Kate Tucker shares that sentiment. She left Seattle for Nashville eight years ago after a breakup. Music is so infused into the culture here that you can almost guarantee that the guy behind you at the grocery store is on his way to a songwrite or <laughs> the girl who's, you know, checking out your groceries just came from one. It's it's such a song city. And so and it really doesn't depend upon who you are or how old you are or what your image is. It's more about, you know, how good your song is. Kate Tucker's songs were apparently so good that she ended up in a co-write at a major record label the first week she arrived in Nashville. Willow Scribner has been playing with her husband as the duo Willow and Wood for nearly two decades. Coming out of the dark, what you gonna do with me? They got married in 2005 and bought a house in West Seattle expecting to stay here. But four years ago, they decided to move to Nashville after a handful of other musician friends made that move. We went down there to visit it and honestly, I just fell in love with the city. It was so lovely and warm, literally warm, and welcoming and has such a diverse community of musicians and they are super supportive of each other and and so we kept going back down and going back down doing a few shows and after the third or fourth time I said hey Mr. Wood do you want to move to Nashville? Out with Bradford Loomis grew up and started a family in the Seattle area. He says he got into music late in the game deciding to become full-time when he was in his 30s. He was laid off from a day job at Verizon in 2012, which eventually led to an eviction and living hand-to-mouth. That's when the family decided to move to Nashville. It was cheaper there. For example, rentals in Nashville average a little more than half of Seattle's costs. And the Case-Shiller Index says you'll pay about a third of what it takes in Seattle to own a house in Nashville. A big part of pursuing music for us is, has been, um, I've always had a wife and kids, so there's a cost to everything. So a big part of our pursuing music as a career is not just how much money can we, can we make, but how little can we need. Since he's been in Nashville, Bradford Loomis and everyone else I spoke with was blown away by the collaborative nature of Nashville's music scene. There's so much co-writing here, and the best way to get ahead here is by helping others. And that just... It's like the nice guys do finish first here, which is pretty rad. Here's Aaron English. My day uh, looks like, yes, lots of collaborating. Uh, I'm also doing a lot of education. So I'm going to seminars or watching webinars or reading and reading and reading or having meetings. Uh, A lot of that you could do anywhere, but it helps if you go to the coffee shop, you go to the yoga studio, you go to the club, and everybody you know is there. Or everybody you want to know but don't yet. Willow says Nashville's music community has been welcoming. Moving down there, we felt that people were just very supportive, very open, willing to share contacts with you, share shows, suggest shows, would come to our shows and would go to their shows. It almost feels like, this sounds silly, but it feels kind of like church. Creatively, Nashville seems like a pretty good move for these artists. They are exploring new ways to share their music 
and they feel more productive like Bradford Loomis. I think I had written like two songs in 2016, and I moved here and promptly wrote 29. But Seattle's roots have proven to be an advantage in Nashville, as Aaron English and Kate Tucker explain. Being able to say you're from Seattle is awfully nice. There's some cachet there. Everybody wants to hear you if you're from somewhere else. I started to get a lot of rights initially because I was from Seattle. People wanted something that was like authentic and different and real, and Seattle's definitely viewed that way from here. All these artists say they want to keep close to Seattle in one way or another. Willow still has her house here. We decided to keep the house because we weren't quite sure if we would love Nashville or if we'd get down there and then six months later figure out that this was the worst idea ever, you know. So we wanted to keep one foot here. Bradford Loomis says he still considers Seattle home and plays sold-out shows here three to four times a year. At the end of the day, Nashville has been a welcome creative challenge for all of these artists. Aaron English sums it up like this. They threw down the gauntlet and said, this is the music city. I am constantly surrounded by the expectation that I will be making music and that the people I meet, the people that I hang with will be making music. There's nothing like giving yourself a short leash, saying, I'm going to make music. I'm going to succeed in it. In, in Nashville, you're either in or you're out. And I love that. For KEXP Sound and Vision, I'm Lisa Craze. Thanks, Lisa. So it's KEXP's Fall Fund Drive this week. You can give online at kexp.org slash sound. We have to raise $600,066 by the end of the week. Six, six, six. And this week's listener question played off that evil, no-good theme of 666. So we asked people, what's a song you weren't allowed to listen to growing up and why? Here are just a few answers. My name's Jason Pellegrini in Austin, Texas. And this is like 1985. I was in high school. So let's start with that. I was at my friend's house. We were listening to the album Husker Du's Metal Circus, which is still one of my favorite all-time albums. And we were in his room getting high. His mom walked in the door. She got furious. The first thing she did was grab my album off the record player and smashed it. So as soon as she did that, I panicked and grabbed my other record that was sitting there and just ran out the door. And ever since then... Uh, We wouldn't be able to play records over his house, and we're always listening to It's Not Funny Anymore, and here it goes. I'm Joni Marr, and I'm from Portland, Oregon. And when I was young, I was lucky enough to grow up with three older brothers and sisters who totally got me into music and supplied me with enough music for discovery throughout my youth in the 80s. So I grew up in a super lame town of 260 people in the middle of Nebraska. So music was our lifeline to the rest of the world. Uh, One day, I'm imagining it in late 1988, early 1989, I was nine years old. Uh, My sister had given me a new cassette tape, uh, Welcome to the Jungle, on cassette, Appetite for Destruction. I was so excited to receive it. I knew the song 
And I was really excited to hear the rest of the cassette. So I was listening to track two, which is innocently titled, It's So Easy. I was blaring it on my little uh, Casio pink cassette player. And um, there's a lot of F-bombs in that song. My mom came running in. She took the cassette, ripped out all of the cassette tape, and I was just horrified. I didn't talk to her for two whole days, which in a nine-year-old's life is a really long time. After that, I purposely got a poster of Guns N' Roses, put it up on my wall, and I had my sister repurchase the cassette tape for me, and I hid it from my mom. Got a pair of headphones so she couldn't hear what I was listening to from then on, and was treated to Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, all of the great 80s bands that Tipper Gore hated. Hey, my name is Dariana Reynolds. I live in Linwood, Washington, and this is my censored song story. So I grew up in a very conservative Christian household, and around when I was turning 13, 14, I started to get very into the kind of California hip-hop that was around me, and that was very forbidden in my household. So I was trying to think, how can I listen to these songs that I love? And I came up with this great plan. So I would turn the radio on very, very low in my room so only I could hear it. And when a song came on that I loved, like Shoop by Salt and Peppa, for instance, I would run to the bathroom and lock the door and get out the Walkman that I had secretly hidden in a drawer behind my hairdryer, put the Walkman on full blast with my headphones and just enjoy those stolen moments of musical bliss by myself. And then when it was over, I'd hide my Walkman. I'd flush and wash my hands just to complete the charade. And I would go back to my room like nothing had happened. Sean O'Connor from the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, I grew up outside Boston in the late 70s, early 80s. I was raised in a staunchly Catholic household, was an altar boy, and went to church all the time. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I was becoming an atheist. I wanted to drop out of the church, and my mom wasn't happy with that and told me I could only leave, stop going to church if I went to a Teens Encounter Christ weekend that was for kind of troubled youth in Boston. It was a very cult kind of um, atmosphere, and everyone was meeting Jesus in a personal way. I didn't know what that meant, but they were all having that experience, and I wasn't. The priest was especially upset about rock and roll. He was talking about the satanic evils of rock and roll and you know how terrible it was. And um, I was thinking in my head, I was trying to feel kind of guilty. I was thinking of Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, Alice Cooper, and lots of these bands that did have pentagrams and stuff on their albums. And then when he got to the peak of his rant, he gave us his examples. Good Girls Don't by The Knack and Only the Good Die Young by Billy Joel, which <laughs> shocked me. It was very mild kind of stuff. Come out, Virginia, don't let me wait. The Catholic girls start much too late. All the sooner or later it comes down to fate. I might as well will be the one. Well, they showed you a statue, told you to pray. They 
Listener question for the week, playing off our 666 theme for the KEXP Fall Fund Drive. Again, we are trying to raise $600,066 by the end of the week. KEXP is latching on to that devilish theme with our thank you gifts, like a t-shirt with a skull wearing headphones and a Bluetooth candle speaker, bringing a little fire to your life. You can check out those thank you gifts online at kexp.org slash sound. And when you donate, tell KEXP you gave because you listened to the Sound and Vision podcast. It helps KEXP know that this podcast matters. And speaking of mattering, let's wrap up the show today with our final question. Why does music matter? Here's Julia Shapiro of the band Chastity Belt. Music is the language of the soul. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, It's always just, like, mattered to me. Since I was a little kid, I found myself just singing songs and being, like, kind of gravitating towards music. That was Sound and Vision. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks so much for listening.